The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today, on the lab report, we're going to talk about a little bug called blastocystis. Hmm, friend or foe? Yeah, it's uh, going to be a blast. Oh, I see what you did there. You like that? The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. I don't understand those vitamins you have there. There's nothing to understand. They're just... The for men. It says men's only vitamin. Yeah, that's right. What? Yeah, it's that got stuff no in there for men. That makes no sense. It's got male herbs. <laughs> oh. Male vitamins. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How's it going today? It's going great. Welcome to the Lab Report. Thanks. Uh, welcome to everyone. Everyone out there to this podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. Wow. How about that? That's a lot. Yeah. And we talk about a lot. We certainly do. And if you like some of the stuff we talk about, you should probably go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe, rate, review, download. All those things are really helpful. That's Helps right. the show. Uh-huh. Really appreciate it. Appreciate all the comments and all the feedback. It's great. And if you have more feedback, you can email that to podcast at gdx.net. We'll take a look at your feedback, analyze it, and get back to you. We always do that. It'll be a good time. Yeah. Excellent. Hey, Patty. What's up? Fall is in the air. How do you feel about You like fall? That's my favorite season. Is it? It's our birthday. That's it's excellent. both of ours. How do you feel about like all the pumpkin stuff? Pumpkin, pumpkin everything. Pumpkin well, lattes. I actually, I actually love pumpkin. It just becomes too much. Enough. But it's only for the one season, so you just get your fill and then it's gone, right? I actually like more of the apples and spice and oh, okay. stuff of, of fall. Eggnog? Who doesn't love eggnog? So eggnog could be polarizing. There's some people Dude, out there that find that definitely finds eggnog very disgusting. The problem is it's like 1,500 calories in a glass, so... Mm, but is it a whole food? Ooh. Is eggnog a whole food? Email your thoughts to <laughs> podcast at gdx.net and we can, have, we can further this eggnog conversation. I mean, eggs, whole food, cream, whole food, mm-hmm. sugar, not not a whole food. Mm. So probably probably not. Yeah, delicious. Yeah. Regardless, what are we talking about, Patty? Well, you said we're going to have a blast today. We're going to have such a good talking time. Talking about blastocystis. Oh, my gosh. It's one of my favorite topics. I love talking about blastocystis. Are you about to put the blast in blastocystis? I'm putting blastocystis on blast. <laughs> wow. Yeah, look out. Dude, I have to hold on to my chair. Okay, so let's talk about... Our overall thoughts about blastocystis, like just well, our general feelings. It's interesting because technically uh-huh. it's a parasite. True. But it's almost sometimes considered a potential pathogen because some people initially thought it was a commensal organism. Right. right. Which, you know, is really strange. Mm-hmm. Let's just face it. If you're <laughs> talking about a parasite, that doesn't fit in the same bucket to me as commensal organism. Right. I, it's not, my well, brain what? doesn't figure those two things out together. Well, it doesn't explain work. why that might be. Well, the way that I've finally come to rationalize this is that the protozoa, blastocystis, mm-hmm. is uh, an organism that is parasitizing other 
bugs in your microbiome. It's it parasitizing off the bacteria. Other bacteria, right. exactly. And it's so it's not like attacking you. It's not like tapeworm where it's like literally stealing your nutrients and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's feeding off the microbiome. So it's a player. And in that circumstance, understanding that bit of it, it's like, oh, okay, I could see where maybe it's more of a commensal organism, even though it is a parasite per se. Yeah, I get it. And it's it's actually correlated with having higher microbial diversity in your gut, which makes sense, right? Because you have, you have a lot of different bugs. There's more stuff for it to parasitize. It's, it's got more a food. Great word, parasitize. Yeah, for sure. Right. And But I, I it is associated with increased diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read all the papers, just to be completely frank with you. I haven't read every single paper on blastocystis. You haven't? I, I haven't. How dare you? I've been meaning to. How dare you? They're stacked up on my, uh, my office desk. But... Um, what I'm trying to say is that I would be careful with correlation versus causation. Great point. Right? Because just because we see blastocystis is more prevalent in people with higher in higher diversity situations, that doesn't mean that the it's a, a good thing to have blastocystis. Right. Right. So right. that's right. just a it's a correlation. It doesn't mean that, oh, blastocystis is all of a sudden benign or beneficial in that way. Okay, well let's back this up a little bit, Michael. Let's do that. Let's, we like we like backing like it up. We get no, a little like excited, get carried away. No, let's let's cart back before it up. the horse. Let's let's start at the basics. So Calm we're talking down. about <laughs> parasitic organisms, yeah. which means it feeds off something else. And there's lots of different types of parasites. We may have covered this in prior episodes. There's flukes, there's roundworms, there's tapeworms, there's protozoa, Uh and protozoa are just single-celled organisms of which one of them is blastocystis, which is what we're talking about here. Right, right, right. an amoeba a protozoa? Anyway, I just wanted to say the word amoeba. (laughs) Actually, it's a a type of a protozoa, but but let's move on. So let's talk about blastocystis. Okay, question I get on the phones a lot. Yeah. How do you get this thing, right? And so... Ultimately, end of the day, this is another one of those organisms that you're probably going to get from some sort of contamination. You know, right. something that you ate or some sort of exposure to contaminated foods. Uh, and that's the most common route, right? Yeah. And exposure to some animals is also another way people get it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you get exposed. Right. Let's talk symptoms. Okay. Hmm. This is where the big, this is where all the question marks lie, it's true. I think. Right. It's true. So. What what's going on from a presentation standpoint if a patient has blasto? Well, to be clear, uh-huh. some people are completely asymptomatic. Right. So what you're telling me is it depends. You're giving Everything me the depends, depends answer. You love that answer. Okay. But, so, but when the symptoms are present, they can be anything, you know, kind of like IBS type symptoms. Sometimes it's nausea, sometimes pain, constipation, diarrhea, fatigue. It's all very vague. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, one of the strange things, too. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of these bugs that will cause uh, GI infection are are associated with like loose stool, diarrhea. But blasto actually can present or has been associated with constipation, which is a very different presentation than a lot of these infections. Do you agree? I mean, it's weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then the question becomes, why so many different presentations for blastocystis? Why are some people asymptomatic? Why so many different types of presentations? Well, I wonder about the the subtyping because there's different mm. subtypes of blastocystis and there has been some conversation in the literature about whether different subtypes present with a different clinical picture and whether they have different pathogenicity depending on the subtype, right? Yep. So there's like 17 what? different blasto subtypes. That's a lot. I have nothing to compare it to. <laughs> and what they're finding is that 
subtypes one through nine are the ones that are usually just found in humans. The rest are found on zoonotic. Nice word. <laughs> you, you are a good reader. Thank you. And to that point about them being found on zoonotic organisms and uh -huh. animals. This organism used to be called Blastocystis hominis. Yeah, good point. And the name changed because the word hominis means humans. And as we just pointed out, they're not all. They're not all found on humans. Some of them are found on animals. So now it's just called Blastocystis species. Yeah, that's a great point. Now let's talk a little bit more about the subtypes themselves. Oh, uh, we're diving in, huh? Let's do this because people people want to know. People, the people do want to know. Are interested in Blastocystis let's subtypes? Let's give the people what they what they need. Well, first things first is we have to set the precedent that, or set the expectation, I should say, mm -hmm. that uh, the literature on this is still very much evolving. And there's not a lot of information on, out there. on some of the subtypes. In fact, some of the subtypes we know very, very little whatsoever. Because not a lot of labs are actually subtyping blastocystis like Genova is. Right. And it's one of the reasons why we brought on the subtyping is because we essentially want to contribute to the dialogue. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to assist in the growing research around blastocystis identification, subtyping, and clinical presentation. So as we go through this episode, we yeah. may not know everything yeah. because it's <laughs> not there to be known yet. So with that caveat that we don't know everything, right? Uh, <laughs> let's let's start talking Isn't about that subtyping. True of most of our episodes, <laughs> Michael. Well, I think first and foremost, we have put all of this information. We've synthesized everything that's available currently in our support guide, which you can find online. But things like subtype five, six, and eight, there's really no literature on yeah. specific associated symptoms. Yeah, but on the flip, like subtype number three, uh -huh. we know is the most common in humans, and uh, it's found worldwide, has yeah. a worldwide geographic distribution, mm -hmm. and it's associated with lots of different symptoms, uh, including things like diarrhea, IBD, yeah. uh, urticaria even, hmm. um, and can also has been seen with asymptomatic presentation too, so similar to the kind of traditional blasto presentation. Truth. Um, so... Subtype number three, find that one very commonly. Right. And you mentioned distribution, and there are some geographic distributions to some of these as well. Yeah. And even something like subtype two, they have found in literature that it's probably the one that's the least pathogenic and associated with things like bloating. So, so if you're going to get one. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. I don't know if you're really going to pick one, your, your favorite subtype, Michael. I'm just saying, if you're going to get one, get one that's less pathogenic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And I think another important point is that it's possible to have several different types of subtypes. That's a great point. So you're not just going to have one theoretically. I mean, most people do have just the one subtype, mm -hmm. but it's definitely possible to have the presence of multiple subtypes. And uh, I think time will tell whether that's going to be associated with even more of a significant clinical presentation. I think that's a good point. Another question that then comes up is treatment, Right. And so the question becomes, do you treat an asymptomatic patient, Michael? Uh, well, let me hedge a little bit and say it most, depends. most. Are of we the, going with depends? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> most of the patients are not asymptomatic, right? right? Most right. of them are symptomatic in some way, shape or form. That's why they did the test. That's right. Uh, so it's pretty rare to find a blastocystis in an asymptomatic patient. Yeah. Um, yeah. That being said, if you were to do so, I think it's worth the conversation. And the subtyping might help there as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think it's worth the conversation whether this is something that requires treatment or not, mm -hmm. um, or whether this could be a situation where it has developed more of a commensal relationship. And there's, there's research out there to suggest that 
blastocystis is commensal to different geographic regions as compared to others. And that might be a little bit just the differences in populations, microbiomes. Yeah. And no matter what subtype you have, if there's blasto on a GI effects and clinicians will often ask us, what do I do about this? The first and foremost place we send them is to the CDC, which is kind of, you know, the Centers for Disease Control outlines the accepted treatment with prescriptive agents to just about every parasite. So we start there. Uh huh. What do they say? They say things like flagell is probably the mainstay. Bactrim yeah. is on that list. But like we've pointed out, blasto can be difficult to treat and we yeah. think it might be subtype dependent. Yeah, that's a great point. So historically and often blastocystis is very resistant to treatment and resistant to eradication tends to recur uh, quite commonly. And so uh, that it's, it's tricky. And yeah. even from a alternative perspective from a nutraceutical perspective can can be very difficult to eradicate blastocystis. There's a lot of different protocols, including things like uh, oregano oils or these sort of mixed uh, essential oil mm -hmm. formulas right. that are used to try to treat blastocystis. Right. And some of the literature has also borne out that some of the subtypes are more resistant to other protocols than others. And like I said, we very purposefully outlined whatever literature is available on all of these things in our support guide. So it's a great resource. And in fact, even Christine Stubbe did an entire webinar on this topic. So if you go to our online webinar archive, you can hear Christine outline all of these things as well. Great work. You know, one thing that we just talked about there that is interesting and confusing to me Go ahead. is the symptom of urticaria. Yeah. And its relationship to blastocystis. That's not something that I would expect. That's right there in the chart mm -hmm. that Dr. Christine Stubbe created. So um, Interestingly, I actually had a clinician call me once. She had a patient with profound urticaria uh -huh. and this you know, significant atopic dermatitis yes. skin condition uh -huh. and had a positive blastocystis on the GIFX. She treated the blastocystis and cleared it, and the urticaria improved. That's amazing. Isn't it? That's really interesting. And isn't there a research study that demonstrated that it's subtypes 2, 3, and 4 that are actually associated with urticaria specifically? Yeah. Um, and so it's even different between subtypes, it seems, or at least that's where the literature is evolving. Yeah, and you wouldn't have thought about that. Like someone presents with urticaria, you don't sure. need to do a stool test. But we talk about it all the time, that the gut is the root cause of a lot of skin conditions. And so just add this to the list as a possibility. Right. And the basic mechanism that they're explaining is that it's possible that protozoa like blastocystis are stimulating, upregulating the production of IgE, which then increases mast cell degranulation, increases histamine. And there you go. You've got your signs and symptoms of urticaria. All right. That, that's all well and good. What do you want to do now, Patty? Well, I think because there is so much confusion about how to treat blastocystis. I mean, like I said, we send people to the CDC and they give guidelines for prescriptive agents, but there's always that question on the phone around natural therapies. Mm -hmm. And so it might be helpful just to discuss some of that. Yeah, and maybe go to the literature and see if there's any evidence in the literature for how to treat blastocystis in a segment we call what do we think we know all right patty i've got a paper here okay what kind uh it's a paper titled inhibition of enteric parasites by emulsified oil of oregano in vivo mm. and it's kind of interesting uh they they did some screening and then they were able to detect people who might have uh parasites they they then did stool tests on them found 14 individuals who had gi parasites okay and then gave them oil of oregano for six weeks and then uh, looked at whether that 
successfully eradicated the parasites. And uh, they found after the six weeks, um, 10 of the 14, they had no evidence of any parasites. That's 77%. Hmm. So um, it's pretty good, right? Yeah. That's definitely uh, something you think about. Oil of oregano is uh, commonly used for any sort of antimicrobial therapy. Uh, it's uh, high in essential oils, and essential oils by, by nature are antimicrobial. So uh, oil of oregano seems to have these constituents that are specifically antimicrobial and uh, has been used a lot. Yeah, and I think one takeaway is that if you go into literature, if you're looking for natural agents to treat blastocystis, there's a lot of literature out there. Just go to PubMed or Google Scholar, and you'll find them. You got one over there? You got a you got a paper? Well, here's a, a paper that's paper talking paper. about Saccharomy- Saccharomyces boulardii, actually. Saccharo B. Yeah, and we know that this is a yeast often used as a probiotic. Um, and there's often several mechanisms by which people use Sac boulardii, and one of them is... By the, the concept that it interferes with the ability of pathogens to colonize because it, it regulates that intestinal microbial homeostasis. And so it kind of takes up all the real estate and prevents other things from taking residence there. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting mechanism. And there's also some modulation of local and systemic immune responses by using SACB. Which is it's really funny because when we do stool testing, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes we will pick up Saccharomyces on the culture analysis, especially if somebody's been taking Saccharomyces boulardii. But uh, it's not one that you see in the absence of somebody taking it. And I think it's probably important to point out that on a stool test in the culture, we it's impossible to distinguish Saccharomyces boulardii from Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Mm-hmm. They look mm-hmm. identical to, to each other. Yeah. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, in the absence of somebody taking Saccharo B, it's really rare to find that show up in a yeast culture, the yeah, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. I've not seen it. I've seen it a couple times, but it's pretty rare. Okay, so we have a symptomatic patient who does a GI effects. Yeah. They happen to have blastocystis, mm-hmm. and we just outlined the fact that there are prescriptive agents. There's many different natural agents that are used. There's a question that comes up a lot on A question? The phone. Yes. Oh. Oh, no. Is it a question of the day? <laughs> and the reason why I'm asking is because I've recently gotten some feedback that uh, mm. the jingling is actually uh, quite nice. Who and told so, you that? Your mom? Well, hi, mom. time is it? Oh, you know what time it is. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Wait, what time is it? Oh, I think you know what time it is. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. Question of the day. All right, that that one's not that offensive to me. You can you can really hear those singers quite clearly. It's I don't know how it would feel if I was them. Truth be told. Well, what I was trying to say is the question that we get a lot on the phone is because there are so many different things you can use to treat blastocystis, why in the world does Genova not offer sensitivities to blastocystis? Well, I think that's a great question. We get that question it a lot. It comes up yeah. a lot. It's, uh, it's an interesting question. So you, you get a positive finding for blastocystis, and if you were to get a similar finding for, say, candida, mm-hmm. albicans, right. or, or citrobacter, or salmonella, or things like that, then we always provide a page that says oregano oil was effective, berberine was effective, maybe this was not so much effective, here's some... Uh, 
and uh, some pharmaceuticals that there was resistance right, right. to the or- organism had resistance to that agent. So we provide that information for bacteria and yeast. So how come not for blastocystis? So here's the thing. Go ahead. You have to have something that's living to determine right. whether something is effective at killing it. Hmm. And so s- the things you just outlined grow in culture. So we can then they're alive and they're, they're alive. They're so, so we can see if something exactly. inhibits that. Growth. Exactly. Exactly. As compared to when we get a stool specimen, uh, where and there's is parasitized. Wow. We're either finding a organism that is no longer viable, mm-hmm. which would be the parasite itself, or we're finding the parasite's eggs, which you can't run. You can't test that for botanical agents to determine whether it's going to kill an egg. It doesn't work that way. Right. So they're in vials with fixatives so that we can look under a microscope to identify them, which by definition means they're dead. Right. Kind of a bleak uh, ending to that (laughs) question of the day. (laughs) We should play another jingle just to lighten it up a little bit, Patty. (laughs) Sorry. Patty, you know, there's one more thing that I think we might want to bring into this episode as it relates to blastocystis. Go ahead. That is the methane dysbiosis score on the GI effects. That's right. So as you know, we've updated the GI effects. It includes several different dysbiosis scores, one of which is the inflammation-associated dysbiosis score. But the methane dysbiosis score is different because we looked at patterns of bacteria as it relates to SIBO breath tests and methanogens. So how does that relate to blastocystis, sir? So here's the interesting bit. Go. We found uh, a pattern of biomarkers when the methane score was elevated. So what we did was, as you said, we compared SIBO breath tests and specifically the methane production on SIBO breath tests to the commensal bacterial picture. But we also looked at the biomarkers. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that the higher the methane dysbiosis score, the more likely it was that there was low levels of uh, IgA, eosinophil protein X, and calprotectin even to that extent. Not that that's a bad thing per se, but Mm -hmm. lower levels of these immune response markers. Okay, so how does that relate to blastocystis? Oh, I'm getting there. Okay. I'm getting there. So... What we also discovered was there was a higher rate of positive findings for blastocystis Hmm. with a high methane dysbiosis score. Okay, so do you think that's related to the methane or do you think it's related to to the decrease of the inflammation and immunology markers? Well, the hypothesis there is that there's some sort of immune suppression occurring, which is lowering IgA, lowering eosinophil protein X and making for an environment that is more uh, hospitable to things like blastocystis. And that's, that's the intriguing. connection. That's intriguing. So yet another place where you can look for some information regarding blasto on the GIFX. Yes. All right, so let's summarize a little bit. All right. What have we learned? We blastocystis, lear- yeah. friend or foe? Mm. Well, from our perspective, yeah. we see patients who are symptomatic get remarkably better after you treat blastocystis. So I'm tending toward foe. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, mm-hmm. the literature is evolving such that some of these subtypes might be non-pathogenic, might not be causing any problem, might be commensal. So, um, All right, you convinced me. Friend. And it's associated with higher diversity there in the gut. There it is. Friend. Associated. Not necessarily causing higher diversity in the gut, but associated. Now we're back to a chicken and the egg thing or these conundrums that have no answers. No, I'm this with you. This is where you I'm, come in. I'm thinking foe. I'm yeah. just trying to play devil's advocate, but mm-hmm. uh, I think... If I saw a blastocystis positive in somebody who is asymptomatic, and again, to your point, we don't see that very often because we are seeing patients who are symptomatic. Right. Uh, but if I were to see that, I probably would not instigate treatment 
uh, for something that's just a positive finding that's maybe not causing any symptoms. Uh, and I, I'm willing to be corrected on that. Mm-hmm. haven't seen any evidence to indicate that there could be long-term sequelae uh, in response to a colonization with blastocystis. And again, I think it remains to be seen, and much like everything we say on the show, you always have to bring it back to the patient's clinical presentation. It depends, right? <laughs> always depends. Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Ashley Van Houten. Oh, she's the muscle maven. She is, and she just wrote a book. It's called It Takes Guts. Cool. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. So you know how there are certain things and certain foods that are very polarizing? Oh, yeah. Like some people absolutely hate them. Some people love it. Yeah. What do you think is the most polarizing food? I'm going to go with cilantro. Cilantro is a good one, especially because they there's that gene or something that makes yeah. it tastes like soap or something yeah. for some yeah. people. Uh-huh. I got you beat. Which? Licorice. Ooh, well, black licorice, you mean? Yeah. <sighs> yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. Do you like it? it? I love it. See? Polarizing. Who are you?